Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Awesome. Well, when you hear that sound, all that you can think of is one of two things, the coming of Jesus or Jumanji. Um, it's like one of those two things. Um, but uh, we're so excited this morning to be continuing in our series on Revelation. And uh, I don't know about you, but every week as we've been going through this book, for those of you that are visiting with us, we absolutely love the Bible. We absolutely love the Word of God. And last week we looked at the hope we have as the church. In, in Revelation 7, we saw the multitude before the throne. And this was in contrast to as the world suffers and as the world struggles and as there are shakings that come to the world that shake the things that people in this world have trusted in. We now come to this picture of, of what we are as the church in heaven, and we see this multitude in heaven in the presence of Jesus, worshiping with every tear having been wiped away and, and hope filling their hearts and joy um, being their, their inheritance in heaven. And, and, and we spoke about how our church and the church is an outpost of heaven. We get to taste that here on a Sunday morning. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee, as a deposit of the full inheritance that we will have in heaven. So we know that heaven is our home. We know that that's where our real life is. We know that, that what we have here on earth pales absolutely in comparison to what we have in heaven. Heaven is our home and, and it is in our, our inheritance and the peace of heaven and the joy of heaven and the fullness of heaven is something that we can begin to experience even here on earth because the Holy Spirit is that deposit of heaven within us. So we can experience God's peace even though we all know that life is difficult, even though we all know that we go through difficult moments in life, that there are tough seasons, that there are disappointments, that there are betrayals, that there's injustice in this world, yet we can experience the peace of God in our hearts as the church, and this is the hope that we have. And now today we come to this incredibly significant moment in Revelation 8 and 9, uh, which is what we're going to be looking at today. I'd like to, to share a message with you entitled, The Thunder of Prayer, as this final seal that is on the scroll that Jesus is opening up as He brings the end of history to pass, as He unravels God's plan for the redemption and renewal of all things. We come to that place now in Revelation 8 and 9. I want to start off this morning by reading a scripture for you from 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. This is what it says. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. God doesn't want judgment or wrath to fall on any person in this world. He does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. People say, oh, people keep saying Jesus is going to return. When's that ever going to happen? And they don't realize that the only reason why it hasn't happened is because God is patient, because He is gracious, because He's still waiting for people to turn to Him and to worship Him, to submit their lives to Him so that they can be saved from the judgment that is to come. 
But there will come a time here in Revelation where that period of grace comes to an end and then judgment comes as it should, as God being the righteous judge of heaven and earth that will correct every injustice that has ever been committed. I want to pray for us, and we're going to get into Revelation 8 and 9 this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you right now that, that we can just worship you, that we can glorify you, that we can just surrender ourselves to your voice. The voice of your Holy Spirit is the one speaking today, Lord God, and we thank you that as we, as we look at your word, Father, that you change our hearts, that you enlarge our faith, Lord God, that you give us eternal perspective, that you help us to understand how real you are, how present you are, and how gracious you are. We thank you this morning, Lord God, that we can be a community of faith that has a beautiful expectation for the hope that is to come. We thank you, God, that we can experience that hope and that peace and that, and that expectation even today in our hearts. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. So how many parents do we have here today? Can I just see a show of hands? How many of you are parents? All right, so if you're like me, you've probably done this at one point in an, or another in your life. When you come to those moments, which happens quite frequently, when you ask your children to do something and they just instantly go deaf, like they're unable to hear you, they're able to still see because their eyes are clearly still fixed on the television, but when it comes to obeying you or hearing what you said, instantly when you give them an instruction, they go deaf. And, and what I do with my kids, and perhaps some of you have done this before, is I start counting. Okay, hands up if you've counted. Right. We've all counted. And so the key to counting for your kids is that every single uh, number, every single successive number needs to increase in the, the severity of your tone in order to carry the, you know, the weight of, of, of the, what would happen if obedience wasn't forthcoming in the moment uh, by the time you utter the number three, right? Three is the end of all things. It's the end of the age. It's the end of history as your children know it. And so, and so you start counting. Also what happens is the look on your face becomes more serious. Your eyes widen. There's a little bit of crazy somewhere in there. Like, I've had a long week. You don't want me to get to three. You don't, you don't want to see what happens to daddy at three, right? And so you start counting one, two. And normally around two, my children undergo a miraculous change. Their ears, the ears of the deaf shall open. And by the time I've said two, in the tone that I say two in, my kids miraculously are able to hear again and respond and obey and do what I've asked them to do. And usually that works, um, except for when my little boy Jude, who is by far the feistiest of all three of my boys, um, Jude was about two years old. And when I got to three, he had learned at school how to count. And he was so excited to count with daddy. So he went four five, six, and then he was like, now you, dad, now you, dad, come, let's do this. And it's really tough to be mad at your kids when they do stuff like that. But why do we count? I know why I do. I know why I count, because I really don't want to punish my kids. I really don't want to uh, have to, uh, you know, discipline them. And if you're a parent, you'll know that the emotional 
just weight of, of having to exercise discipline, which we know is necessary and good for our kids, and we should do it. We should have those boundaries, and we should enforce those boundaries because it makes them feel safe, and, and it raises them up knowing what's right and wrong, and, and it's absolutely vital. But for me, it's always been the most difficult part of parenting. And so I count because really, I don't want to do this. It's like, don't make me do this. Don't make me exercise the discipline that is right and that is necessary. If you, I would just way prefer it if you would hear and obey. That, that, that's what I prefer. Just follow the instruction, obey, submit, and they won't need, we won't need any further warning. And so I count to give them sufficient warning in order to prevent having to punish them in that moment. And in the same way, Here in the book of Revelation, as we get closer to the end of history, it's like God is counting. Repent, there's a shaking. Repent, there is a time of judgment coming. Repent while you still have time. It's the counting, the one, the two, three. And this is what we see through Revelation, is that the closer we come to the moment of judgment, the more severe the count becomes. And the more things are unleashed with the ultimate goal of leading people to a place of repentance. So far, we saw the six seals breaking. And as I mentioned, each seal that broke as Jesus was unraveling the scroll that will bring about the end of history, um, each one shook something that people trusted in, whether it's the economy, whether it's the natural world, um, whatever it might be, the things that they've trusted in for security God shakes those to get them to ultimately turn to Him. And now we see Jesus on the throne here in Revelation 8, and He is about to break the seventh seal. As the seventh seal breaks in Revelation, the scroll can now be unrolled. And as He does that, each part of this, as as that scroll is unrolled, brings about further warnings, which we'll look at today, still in this effort to get people to repent. So we're going to read from Revelation 8 verse 1 this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can go with me to Revelation 8 1. It says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. We've just come from a scene where there's absolute just worship and, and, and song and the sound of the angels and thunder and lightning and all these things that, that just this magnificent scene of worship, like it's going to be next Sunday night when we have our first worship evening here at Anchor Church. This is this magnificent scene of worship. And now as that seventh seal breaks, there's absolute silence in heaven for half an hour. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. How many of you have ever wondered whether God is still in control? You've wondered whether God still sees what's going down here on earth and the things that are happening here on earth, whether whether He sees the injustice, whether He recognizes the criminal activity and the hardships and the difficulties and and all the things that, that, is, that, is, that we suffer as a part of the human race here on earth, all the wars and, and the rumors of wars and the, and, the, and the poverty and the brokenness. I don't think anybody um, can look at this world 
and not say that there is something wrong, dramatically wrong with our world. Our Father is a loving God. He is love itself. And the world, by a very far stretch, does not represent His heart. And that's why God keeps speaking to us as His children, saying, this is not who I created you to be, but, but sin has turned us into rebels, and our own sin has broken this world, the politics and the pain that we experience. And sometimes we as the church wonder, does God see these things? Has He ever heard the prayers that you've prayed, the, the tears that you've cried when you lay in your bed at night and the hardships that you've suffered? And will He act? Will He do something about the injustice? Will he uh, speak to those that have, that have done things that are corrupt, that have intentionally hurt others? I know I have, and I'm sure all of us have suffered injustice in some form or another. Some of, some of you may have been hurt or betrayed or robbed. As a pastor, I have the very unenviable job of sitting with people in the wake of injustice. Just last week, I did a funeral for a brother and sister that were both murdered in their own home. And I had to stand with that family and I had to encourage them from the scriptures after their family had experienced that kind of trauma. And you ask, where is God? Will he act? Is he around? Does he care? A few months ago, I was sitting with a dad who was in ICU, had just come out of an operation. He'd been in a car accident that wasn't his fault and his 26-year-old son had died in that accident. And I had to sit with this father and encourage him in ICU, suffering his own injuries. And I, as I spoke to him, all you can do is encourage and, 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 and speak to him and allow him to process some of those emotions. And at one point, he was a, one of those typical, really big, strong, you know, Afrikaans guys that doesn't ever cry. And, and he said at one point, I just feel sorry for my wife and my daughter. And just a tear rolled down his eye. And you think, where is God? Will he act? Will he do what he promised to do? Will he set things right? How long will this world suffer this injustice? Across the world, Christians are murdered for their faith daily. 8,000 Christians every year get persecuted and killed for their faith. And so many of us, when we go through these moments, we ask, where is God? Is he still involved? Does he care? Does this matter to him? Will we bring justice to the world? And we think God is slack, according to his promise. But 2 Peter 3 tells us he's not slack, as some count slowness. He is just patient. He's just patient. And here's the good news that we see in Revelation 8, in these first few chapter, verses in, in Revelation 8 is we see that every prayer that you have ever prayed has not just drifted off into space somewhere. It's not just bounced off the ceiling and come back. It's, it's not just fallen on deaf ears. But every single prayer you've ever, ever prayed, every single cry for justice in your life, every single th time you've ever expressed a longing for things to be set right, every single one of those prayers are on the altar of heaven before the king. And the smoke of their incense is before the creator of heaven and earth. And even though it doesn't always happen in our timeline, God absolutely 
will answer those prayers. In fact, what we see here in Revelation is that God takes the prayers and He mixes it. The angel goes and takes the prayers mixed with the incense, which is, which is a symbol of worship in the Bible. So the worship of heaven and of the angels gets mixed with the prayers of the church, and it's those prayers that God answers as He brings justice to this world. It's the prayers themselves that are hurled down to earth and produce the thunder and the lightning and the flashes. It's the thunder of prayer. Your prayers are powerful and they are prominent before the throne. And so we are encouraged to never give up. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Never give up. Never stop praying. Never stop trusting. Never stop believing. The grace of God is more powerful than anything we can suffer. And in the right time, God will answer every prayer that has ever been prayed. In the right time, He will restore every broken thing in your life and in this world, and He will wipe away every tear and judge every injustice. This is the beautiful hope and expectation that we have as the church and this is the hope that Revelation brings to us, is that no matter what the story of history has been, it's not yet finished. The story isn't finished. It continues, and that time will come. So what happens in this moment as Jesus breaks that final seal? All of a sudden, all of heaven goes silent. The angels stop singing, and the sound of worship dies down. And in this moment of silence, it's like the angels stand in awe, dumbstruck at what is about to happen. But there's more than just awe and, and dread in this moment of silence. It's actually this, this, this reverence as all of heaven goes silent and the prayers of the people are answered. It's giving way to the prominence of the prayers that you have prayed and I have prayed and the church has prayed for thousands of years. And this is something that God wants to show John in the book of Revelation through this vision in, in Revelation 8 and 9, the role that Christians play in the tremendous upheaval of history in this moment. Leon Morris puts it this way, the saints appear insignificant. A lot of people go, oh, shame, that little church. Oh, those Christians are so silly. The saints appear insignificant to men at large, but in the sight of God, they matter. Even great cosmic cataclysms are held back on their account, and the praises of the angels give way to silence so that the saints may be heard. We saw as the sixth seal bro broke, or as the fifth seal broke, there were the, the martyrs under the throne saying, how long, O God, until you avenge our death? And at least in part, this is their prayer being answered in this moment. In this silence, we have the dramatic presentation of the importance of the prayers of the saints. Before the scroll is opened, God wants to make it clear to us that the unfolding of the end of the world will happen partly due to the prayers of the saints. Where are all those prayers I prayed? Where did they end up? Will they make a difference? At least in part, we know that they end up before the throne of God and that they will be a part of the action that God takes at the end of history. After the breaking of the seal, 
It speaks about seven angels that are given seven trumpets. And these seven angels are referred to in the Scriptures as the angels of presence, with a capital P. The angels that stand in the presence of God. And this is, is a reference to, if you're taking down notes, Isaiah 63, verse 9. In Isaiah 63, verse 9, it talks about the angels of presence. And in the book of Enoch, uh, which isn't um, one of the, the canonized books of Scripture, but in the book of Enoch, it talks about, about the seven archangels, and it lists them by name. And one of those angels we know is Gabriel. And in Luke 1 verse 19, Gabriel says to Zechariah, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. One of the angels of presence, these seven archangels. And, uh, and each of these seven angels is given a trumpet. Biblically, a trumpet is used extensively, but mainly it is used to sound the alarm in time of war or to sound the time at which an attack or a movement of an army will be orchestrated, and then also in the coronation of a king. Trumpets are blown when the king is coronated. The king is coming, and the, the army, his armies march on ahead. We know the story of the fall of Jericho. And what did God tell the people of Israel to do? They marched around the city six days, and on the seventh day, as they marched around, they marched around seven times. In what? absolute silence. Who walked at the front of the armies of Israel? Seven priests. What did they have in their hands? Seven trumpets. This was a dramatic foreshadowing of what the end of the age would look like. Those seven priests with seven trumpets walking around the walls of Jericho in absolute silence. And then when they had reached the seventh time, the trumpets blew and the people of Israel shouted, and judgment came on the city of Jericho, and the walls of Jericho fell down, and God had victory over that city. The next sound that we hear in heaven after the silence, like the shouts of the people of Israel at the walls of Jericho, is the sound of this other angel coming before the altar with incense and with, this, with these prayers. We hear those prayers, and, 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 and it's cast down to heaven. And we hear the thunder, we hear the answer, we hear the rumbling as the walls of this world come down. This represents the action of God from heaven on the earth. And now the scroll at the end of the world begins to open. Can I just pause for a moment to say, church, we need to be praying more. We need to be praying more. If you see what your prayers produce in heaven, the thunder of prayer, what it sounds like, what it feels like, how powerful it is? Why would we go through things and not stop first to pray? When we want God to act, why won't we trust Him first as the one who moves powerfully? Because of our prayers. God says, you do not have because you do not ask. So let's ask boldly, church. We want to see people saved here at Anchor Church. Can I ask all of us, can we commit every single day to praying that God will bring people here that can meet Jesus in this place? Can we be a, a church that saves souls and reaches people? We've got to start praying more. This is the power and the prominence of prayer. In Exodus 3 verse 7, as the people of Israel are, are enslaved by Egypt, which really is a symbol of the world system, and they're crying out to God. Once again, those prayers are there. They're saying, God, deliver us from our, these taskmasters, from slavery to the Egyptian system. 
And we see as God sends Moses to bring about that deliverance, he says this to him, to, to Moses. In Exodus 3 verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. I've seen what they're going through and I've heard their cry. Their prayers have reached me because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. So this has happened in history before where the prayers have been heard and God acts. We can rest assured that he will act again in the future. Now the angels prepare to blow their trumpets. And the first four trumpet blasts, like in uh, the first four seals that were broken, affect the physical, natural world without directly affecting um, the lives of people. They're, 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 we haven't even yet come. This is still God going, one, two, three. He's still giving time, and he's shaking everything around humanity before he actually begins to judge humanity. And what we see is as these shakings happen and as these judgments start to come, God still restricts them. And one theme that comes out of this is that we don't actually realize how much God is protecting even the unbelievers in this world from being overrun by demonic forces, letting the devil just have his way with people, as well as from the elements. We know how, you know, we look at places like the Ngorogoro Crater in Africa and how we know that, that meteorites and comets and, and heavenly bodies have hit the earth before, but in thousands of years, some would say millions, nothing has overcome our world. And that's not coincidence. That's because God has protected the earth. He's protected the people. He's restrained Satan and the effect, his effects on the earth to a certain extent. God has delivered his people, and in the time of Egypt, he looked at the people of Israel, and even though plagues, the same plagues then after that deliverance as the people of the earth or the people of Egypt hardened their hearts towards God, he sent plagues that affected the physical, natural environment before he started to affect the actual lives of the people in judgment. And so once again, these trumpets that blow are like the, the, what happened in Egypt with the plagues that came over Egypt were like a foreshadowing of what will happen here. The first four just affect the natural world in efforts to get people to repent. And like in Egypt, only the final few actually affect people except for the church because they had the blood of the lamb. They had the seal of God over the doorposts of their homes. And so they were spared from facing this. And in the time of this judgment, it says, it tells us here that the church will not suffer these. Believers will not suffer these judgments. So there's almost an exact foreshadowing here. And just one note, and as we go through Revelation, there's a few technical things that we jump into, and then we come out of that again to express the heart of it. But, but the final three trumpets usher in the three woes that bring judgment to unrepentant people but they don't necessarily replicate what happened when the seals were broken. But at the same time, they're also not completely chronological. And so this is the same time period, although the severity as it comes closer to the final judgment, this is not yet the final judgment, as it comes closer, the severity does increase. Um, and so it is in the, the same time period. We see in Revelation 18 that a great star falls, but we already read in chapter 6, that the stars of heaven fell. And so it's sometimes be, people get, become confused if they're trying to um, read it chronologically like that. Let's read. 
as these trumpets blow. Revelation 8 verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the heaven was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. This is the same as the seventh plague that hit Egypt in Exodus 9. Exactly the same thing that happened in Egypt happens here now on a grander scale. As, as Moses stretched his staff out to the sky, hail and thunder and lightning flashed. And now as that first trumpet blows, there is hail and, and thunder and lightning and the color of blood, which is, which is, is the syntax here, speaks about the idea that, that this red color, these red clouds were, were building up in heaven to produce the storm on earth. In fact, in the ancient writings of the Hebrew writings of the Talmud, they believe that the sixth heaven is a place where, where thunder and, and lightning and poisonous gases, poisonous vapors are stored, maintained by gates of fire. And now this, these gates of fire are unleashed to bring the storm on the earth. And in the wake of the storm, a third of earth is set on fire. The trees that it speaks to about here being burned up probably refers to fruit trees. And so even though lives aren't lost in the storm itself, we see that life is affected and there surely would have been food shortages and economic hardship as a result of, of this shaking that comes to the earth. When it speaks about the grass, it refers to other, all other vegetation. And so it's directed towards nature but has serious repercussions. One, God going, one, there's a judgment coming. You still have time. Revelations 8, verse 8, Revelation 8, 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The second trumpet replicates the first plague of Egypt. As all the rivers in Egypt were turned into blood, killing the fish and making it undrinkable. And this time it says something like a burning mountain, which could have been a meteorite that strikes the sea. It could also be a massive volcanic blast. We know in 2010, a volcano erupted in, in Iceland. And, uh, you know, you think it's just one mountain. It was actually, a, comparatively, it was quite a small eruption. And I think it was most of the flights in Europe, if not all the flights in Europe, were shut down for more than a week just because of the volcanic ash that, that drifted and has pieces of glass in it that drifted across Europe on the winds. That's a small volcanic blast, and, and something like that happens here in, in Revelation 8.10, uh, sorry, 8.8, 8, 8, and, um, and it strikes the sea, and a third of the sea turns to blood. Again, the source of life, the fish and the ships, economic hardship, Revelation 8.10, then the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. So here we have something like a meteorite hitting the earth and it fell on a third of the rivers. So this hits inland and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood and the third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. This third trumpet being a meteorite is named after the effect that it has. Wormwood is a very bitter plant and as it strikes the waters, we see a reverse of the miracle that God did with Israel in the wilderness at, at, at Marah, where he took the bitter waters and, and turned it into sweet waters for people to drink. We now see the reverse of that. 
The waters are turned bitter, and as people drank it, people died from the drinking of the water as it had been turned bitter. So God strikes the fresh water in our world again, a source of life. Revelation 8.12 says, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Darkness is very, very unsettling when it hits you, except I think the people that are going to do the best during this time will be South Africans, because we're all just going to go, ESCOM, you know, (laughs) load shedding. So we'll probably be better prepared than the rest of the world, but this again recalls the ninth plague of Egypt, where the only place that had light was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. This is also in direct confrontation, even when it happened in Egypt. One of the main gods that the Egyptians worshipped was Ra, the sun god. And what God was declaring to the Egyptians and to all of the world as the fame of the plagues that was brought down on them spread was that I am the true God. You worship Ra, I'll darken the sun and show you that I am greater than the sun god. In the same way, as that happens, there is a reality that sets in for people that there might be something that that is more powerful than what we have estimated in our own sense. That He is truly, there truly is a God that is over, sovereign over heaven and earth. So a third of the sun and the moon is darkened. Revelation 8.13 says, Then I looked and I heard an, an eagle crying, with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. So, so there's this picture of, of this eagle that is now coming to bring this message, and the eagle cries out, Woe, 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 three trumpets left. To those who dwell on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets, that the three angels are about to blow. This eagle being a bird of prey, but also symbolizing divinity. For the first four trumpets, just the source of life was affected. But now life itself is affected. And this is where Revelation gets real. Revelation 9 verse 1 says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit or the abyss. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. This time, the star that has fallen is not a meteorite, it's not a heavenly body, but the scripture often refers to angels or angelic beings as stars. The morning stars sang as God created the earth. It speaks about these angels. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heavens. And so um, this is referenced throughout scripture. And so it probably refers to an angel of God come down to now give access to demonic forces that God has restrained up until now over the earth. When Jesus drove out the legion of demons out of the demoniac of Gadara, he he comes before him and and the demons speak to Jesus saying, why have you come to torment us before our time? They know that there is a judgment coming. They say, why have you come to torment us? And in Luke 8.30, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And listen to this. And they begged him, the the demons begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. And so there is an abyss spiritually where much of the demonic force 
of Satan is restrained from affecting this earth. And so these demons say, please don't send us into that abyss. Don't lock us up until that final time. And this is the same abyss that now gets unlocked so that the demonic forces are released. And what follows is a description that is, the best word for it is probably grotesque, of what demonic forces would look like. And, and people try to interpret this literally and go, oh, really, is, there gonna be, is it going to look like that? They also try and take it and try and go, well, this symbolizes this and this symbolizes this. And they try and figure out what those demonic forces will look like. But more than that, it's actually supposed to be giving us an idea of the grotesque nature and the violence that comes forth from Satan and from his forces. And so these are now released in this moment. And so this description simply gives us insight into the power they have to torment. And so these forces are released and they're given they're allowed for five months to torment people but not bring death. And so still God is allowing people to repent. Revelation 9 verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like the horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like, the, like woman's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. We can get caught up in, in, in the imagery there, but the idea is, is that this is something that we don't want to face. This is something we don't want anybody to face. This is something God doesn't want anybody to face. In essence, these are demonic forces dressed for battle. A demonic cavalry charging into battle. We saw in Egypt the locusts as the eighth plague. And the symbol of the locust is always that of destruction. What it symbolizes is destruction. And it speaks about how the god of the bottomless pit, his name is Abaddon, which means destroyer. It means destruction. And so the Hebrew word is Abaddon, but the Greek equivalent, Apollyon, also means destroyer. And the root of that word Apollyon is the same Greek root for Apollo. Apollo was one of the main gods um, out of Hellenism that was worshipped in Rome during this time. And in fact, the Roman emperors believed that they were an incarnation of Apollo. And so what John does by showing us the Greek name Apollyon for Abaddon is actually to show that the, the powers that would rule over this world are influenced by the God of the underworld, by the prince of the bottomless pit, the abyss. Apollo, Apollyon, Abaddon. Evidently, if you go to, to Greece and you go and look at the statues of Apollo, you will find that his symbol is the symbol of a locust. 
In essence, this shows us the stark contrast of what it looks like for those who trust in Jesus as the multitude before the throne with no tear, experiencing the joy and the protection of His presence, and what it looks like when God hands the world over to what they always said they wanted, which is freedom from God. What we see here is not God directly judging the world, but slowly removing His restraint, saying, okay, you don't want me. I've never stepped back before. I kept loving. I kept charging. I kept sending. I, I created the church. I sent it out. I preached the word. I showed you that there's grace. But if you insist on not having me in your world and in your life, there will come a time that I will give you what you want. And as I step back, the enemy has his full effect in our lives. It's harmful. It's broken. When I was in high school, I remembered one guy saying to me, and I've heard this since then, but people say, I don't care if I go to hell as long as I have fun. I just need to read him Revelation 9 real quick. Because we don't want to face this. God doesn't want us to. This is the horrors of being at the mercy of the evil one, and it's unimaginable. The judgment depicted here is not direct divine judgment, but a revelation of what it would mean for God to hand the world over to demonic powers. That's why it says that they were allowed, and they were only allowed for five months. God is still restraining them to a certain extent. Just five months so that people can repent. Just stepping back, very slowly, God is handing the world over to what they always said they wanted. Revelation 9 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of humankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like serpents with heads, and by means of them they would wound. We see here a demonic cavalry 200 million strong, which symbolizes an infinite number, wearing those colors representing red, blue, and yellow, coming out and now actually having a power to judge and bring death to one-third of the world. A lot of people have tried to line this up with history, what those horses could represent. Could it be a tank? Could it be a helicopter? And, and you know, the, the Bible tells us that some of these words are sealed up and they will be revealed. Well, some of it we'll only understand in hindsight as we look at what it actually represents. A lot of people look at Revelation 8, 38 and 39, which speaks about Gog and Magog, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, Gog essentially meaning the ruler of the area of Magog, which was an area... Um, which, which is north of Israel and could symbolize Russia and Iran. And so often people believe that when Russia make an alliance or a treaty with Iran and attack Israel, it would be the battle of Gog and Magog. And according to uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, it will take seven months to bury the bodies from that battle. An incredible time of war breaking out. 
but we don't necessarily know exactly how it's going to play out. Scripturally, this battle is better understood as a demonic attack on the people of this world where a third of the unbelieving world are killed by fire, smoke, and sulfur. Now, this is where oftentimes theologically, I wish I had more than 30, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning to unpack this for you because people would say, but I thought he was a loving God and now he's bringing judgment, which is always a silly argument to think that you can't have truth and love at the same time. What is love without truth and what is truth without love? And God is both perfectly. But also like in the case of Jericho, when the walls fell, they said all those innocent people died. Until you read the history of Jericho and how they worshiped the God, a God called Molech and how they had a massive bronze statue that they would heat up with fire, and then in order to have a good harvest every year, they would take babies and put them living in those heated up bronze hands so that those children would die burning to death as a sacrifice to Molech. And then you realize there isn't really such a thing as an innocent person. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. However, in Christ... By his grace, he took the punishment that we deserved. And that's why Jesus is the only way for us to escape the wrath that is to come, to, ex to escape this judgment. Sadly, sadly, the human heart in the book of Ezekiel is described as a rock, as something that is hard, as something that refuses to relent, that cannot feel, that cannot beat. And the promise for us as the church, God says to Ezekiel, I will take your heart of stone from you and I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that will beat that you may know me, a heart that can love and that can feel. But sadly, Revelation 9, 20 and 21, the final verses in this chapter shows us the unrepentant state of the human heart. In Revelation 9, 20, it says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The hardness of the human heart is so aptly described here. It's like an abused woman that is being abused by her husband or by her partner but is so broken herself that she ends up devoting herself to her abuser. That's what our world is doing. How much glorification of evil happens in our world to the point where being bad literally means being good. The language that we use, the badder it is, the more violent it is, the, you know, the, the, the more proud and arrogant it is, the better it is. Our world doesn't truly value things like humility and gentleness and kindness. This is the hardness of the human condition. We end up worshiping the things that hurt us. Some of you may have listened to my message this morning. I don't want to submit to that. I want to go live my life my way, no matter what happens. That's just another form of worshiping the very thing that's destroying your life. And as a church, we don't want to see lives destroyed. We want to see people whole. We want to see them healthy. We want to see them prospering. 
We want to see them with families that, that love one another, working through the difficulties of this life together. We want to see them committed to living for something greater, having a vision for their life and for their future and for their city. We want to see the grace of God impact every single life. We don't want to see people worshiping the things that will ultimately destroy them. Whoever you are here today, God loves you. Don't worship the things that will destroy you. Don't give your allegiance to things that will break you down and harm your family. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He has more for you. And this is proof once more. These people that refuse to repent, even though all these shakings happened, it's proof once more that it is only the grace of God and the message of what God did. Now we understand the cross better than ever before. Because on the cross, God took all that judgment that he was going to put on us and he poured out the cup of his wrath on Jesus to its fullest extent. Our judgment has already happened. My sin has already been judged. Your sin has already been judged. It was put on Jesus. And so there is no more wrath no more judgment for us. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ. No more, no more sin. No more shame. This is the only way for us to be truly rescued. And this is why in Matthew 4 verse 17, it tells us how Jesus began to preach. What was his message? Matthew 4 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent. The word repent in Hebrew was teshuva, turn around, come back, change your mind. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come back. This is the most important message of all time. If we love people, we will preach this message with every fiber of our beings, with every breath we have in our lungs. And then Jesus took that message and he said, here you go, church. Here you go, church. It's yours. And he didn't talk about the organization. He didn't talk about the building. He didn't talk about whoever's holding this microphone. He spoke to every one of us. Here you go, church, my people, my body. Go and share the news. Go and preach the gospel to every living creature. Baptizing those who believe. Today we're going to baptize some people. We're going to celebrate with them that their eternal future their destiny is to stand in heaven with that multitude, not to suffer the judgment of God. So let's do that. Let's do that. Let's share that message. Let's share the gospel. Let's see lives saved and changed and healed and restored to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me, church, this morning as we pray?